0: And welcome to another episode of walk-ins welcome it's our national restaurant podcast i'm michael russell and i'm gary the foodie aka gary okazaki <laughs> and uh we're here drinking soda water uh at my house where we record the podcast we've got a pretty fun show planned tonight we're gonna talk about where gary's been he travels the world um we're gonna talk about our favorite bites of the past week, Um, new restaurants we're excited about. We're going to break down a couple of interesting restaurant lists, the Eater National 38 and... Tokyo Michelin Guy, which just came out a few hours ago. And we're also going to talk about some of our favorite bakeries, both around the nation and here in Portland where we live. And to finish it off, we'll talk a little bit about sports like we always do. Um, So... To get things started, I just wanted to talk a little bit about an experience I had um, visiting Seattle recently. I went to check out the new Renee Erickson uh, restaurant called Wilmot's Ghost, which is inside the Amazon spheres. And this restaurant was surprisingly like straightforward Italian. I wasn't really expecting that. I mean, her restaurants are kind of Mediterranean, or there's all sorts of different influences. So we ordered a pretty, you know, straight ahead Italian meal included this sort of uh, Roman style pizza that they do that comes with brass scissors. Um, We ordered clams, which is one of the secundi and like a couple of salads and also a a fried calamari. So the weird thing for me was that I don't really care about coursing how, how a meal is coursed, like what order the dishes are presented in. But at Wilmot's Ghost, the coursing was, like, crazy. Like, they brought out the clams first, which was on their menu as a as a secundi. Okay. They brought out the salad next and didn't reset our plate. So we had oh, my. clam shells. And now we're eating chicories in the clam juice and the cream. <laughs> and then the pizza came. And then the fritti, the calamari, came after the pizza. It was, like... Completely out of order to the point where, for me, it was a little off putting. My friends who aren't restaurant media or in the restaurant industry didn't care at all. But why, 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 why was it off putting for you? I mean, the main thing was dealing with like salad greens and clam shells on the same plate was not okay like that fun. Yeah, you're right. There's an order to things, especially when you're doing a more traditional Italian restaurant, which this seems to be or to want to be, especially the way the menu's laid out with premi, me, etc. Was it really busy? Mm, It was full, full, but not crushed. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were humming along. There was no, there was no wait for a table. So, I mean, my question for you is just like, how much does that, how much does the coursing of a dinner as someone who eats out all the time? How much does it matter to you? Do you ever get bothered by it? Like no, I, to me it sounds sounds like it wasn't so much an issue. Well, it wasn't an issue
1: of coursing, but it's also like they should have cleared the plates. They cleared the plates and you had clean plates. Would that have been? Would, would you? Would that have been better?
0: Yeah, I mean they, did, I, they reset us a couple times. Okay, I, they reset us after after the clam salad combo, uh, and. It just felt like the wrong way around, but it, this, that's not something that bothers you.
1: No, it doesn't bother me because, well, let's say like the, this restaurant in um, LA County in Santa Monica called Dialogue, and Dave Barron, the chef owner, he'll he'll throw in desserts throughout the entire twenty, you know, fifteen to twenty courses, and he'll he'll intersperse uh, desserts throughout the menu, and I and I find that almost intriguing. So some people may be off put by the fact that dessert is served throughout the meal. And I've I've gone to restaurants where I've ordered dessert first. I just want my dessert right now. Please, can you just give me the dessert right now? And then I'll I'll do reverse. I'll start with dessert and end with like an appetizer.
0: Do you walk into the restaurant backwards? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: no, but I've done it before, and it, you know it's I don't it, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I don't really care what order you put them out.
0: I guess like. Something like that, where they're trying to like disrupt the normal flow of a <laughs> dinner, is a little different than what right. I experienced, which right. I felt was more just like, you know, oh, the clams are ready, let's bring those out, even though it doesn't really make sense for the way we're eating and, you know, even the way they formatted their own menu. Like, I, if there's thought behind it, then I, right, fine, you know.
1: Or, or for me, just ordering dessert first and going in reverse order, that's just, I don't, that to me, that's just, I don't really care. So I don't, I just bring the food out when it wouldn't have bothered me if I were in your. If I were in your place.
0: All right. Fair enough. I feel like a jerk now. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) All right. I'll back off. But no, other than that, it was a a great meal. And I'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to our new restaurants we're excited about. So the next thing that we want to talk about is where in the world was Gary Okazaki?
1: I was supposed to be in Bangkok the week before um, Thanksgiving, but I had issues with this, you know, part of the the flight. So I thought, oh, I'll just move it to another month. And I, I, I did a last minute trip to New York city and it was, um, I, this was my fourth trip to New York this year. So probably eaten at 60, 70 New York restaurants, I did another 30, 25 to 30 on this trip. And it, you know what? I, I, I've, I've grown to appreciate New York more and more. There's just so much, so many options. And, um, they're just diverse options. It's still—I don't think it's the best food city in America, but hopefully, at one point, we can talk about that in a future podcast about what wh- who I think are the best food cities, maybe in America or the world. But um, I had some am- amazing meals in New York, and you know how much I love pasta, so I had great some great pastas. So um, it was—it was fun. I had a great time, and i had, one of the one of my favorite bites. I can talk about favorite bites. One of my favorite bites. It one of my favorite bites in um, the last week was in New York City. It was Ignacio Matos. He has a number of restaurants in New York City, Estella, Cafe Ultra Paradiso, and Flora Bar. And I went to Cafe Ultra Paradiso and Flora Bar. And at Flora Bar, it blew me away. Um, There's a, a lobster and crab dumpling and yuzu broth that was simply spectacular. And that was my favorite bite that I had last week. And Michael, what was yours?
0: Well, that calamari when it came was perfect. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, at Wilmot's Ghost, just a really simple fried calamari. Really, they just absolutely nailed it. And that was some of the big eating out I did because we were up in Seattle visiting friends and having Thanksgiving dinner at home. So if we can talk about a new restaurant we're excited about, just, you know, quickly, that Wilmot's Ghost is the latest Renee Erickson's, the latest Sea Creatures restaurant. And it's inside the Amazon Spheres, which are these, like, surprisingly kind of small like i expected them to be slightly bigger really like spheres actual like architectural spheres there's th- huge three in a row well they're like what 40 feet tall uh, i saw renderings i, I, I thought they were going to be like 100 feet tall
1: i don't know i kind of thought they were i don't know i don't know maybe i don't know like height but it's i would have guessed if you asked me I'd they're closer to 100 than 40 but i don't know
0: I think it's like 40, yeah, 40, 50. But it, they're cool. Like you walk they're up to so it. so cool. You walk up to it and you there's just these glass marbles, giant glass marbles. Not that giant, but pretty giant. And they're filled with, it looks like the biodome in there. They're filled with yeah, exactly. tropical plants and, you know. The restaurant itself is very hip. It's kind of like lots of pinks and brass and it's a small... Like curved, like a new moon, I guess would be the shape, sort of. So it's outside of the spheres,
1: so you don't no, walk into the. No, it's on sphere. the edge
0: of the sphere. You do okay. walk into the sphere, though. Okay. You walk in through a, a separate entrance, so you're not going into any of the Amazon, you know, offices or, or rest areas or I don't know what they have in there. I guess it's like Jeff Bezos's like evil lair, maybe. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. I was wondering because I actually tried to sneak in. Obviously, they nailed me. So
0: Sea Creatures runs not just that, but they run a bar on the sphere right below it. That's I think called the. The deep dive, I want to say. I did not go to that. But yeah, that was a lot of fun. What was a new restaurant that's on your list?
1: In New York City, I went to a restaurant that just opened about nine days before. And it's Jonathan Benno's um, restaurant called called Benno. And he has uh, two other spots in the Evelyn Hotel. But the final piece to his mini empire in the hotel was Benno. And if you don't know Jonathan Benno, he was the original chef de cuisine, three Michelin star per se. And then after he stayed at per se for a, year, a few years, something like six years, then he went to become the executive chef and partner of Lincoln Restaurant near the Lincoln Center. And which, and that earned, obviously per se earned three Michelin stars and per se, I mean, Stephen Lincoln garnered one Michelin star throughout his tenure. And he left a few years, a couple of years ago, to open up his own place inside. Were, were they
0: aiming for one? I mean, like, was it? I'm trying oh, they to had, remember. Yeah, it wasn't know. like, I yeah. want to get three stars no, here. No, no.
1: It's hard to get. Actually, it's very hard for an Italian restaurant to get three Michelin stars in the United States. Uh, there's only one. And that's Quince. And so, um, I, I, Benno was fantastic. It's very elegant it's smaller than I expected. I expected maybe 80 to 100 seats. I think they're only about 45 seats. Uh, there is a tasting menu options option. I went a la carte. And as usual, because I like pasta and noodles, I went with pasta and my pastas were, you know, were just very well done. And Jonathan, I was told, is back in the kitchen. He was he's been there every day that the restaurant's open, I was told, and and I'm happy for him and I'd be surprised if he didn't get a Michelin star for Beno next year.
0: Tell us about the pastas you had.
1: The first one was uh spaghetti with clams, sea urchin, and scallions. And I also had ulumaki mm. with main lobster and um you know Fra Diablo. And my final one was um, garganelli with veal and porcini ragu. Yeah, that sounds good. Oh, god! And you know, obviously, the all the noodles pastas are going to be um, handmade, house made, and they were just um, fantastic. Great pastas.
0: Did you say what part of town it's in?
1: It is on in the twenties. Like, um, I think it's west. 27th, 28th, 29th, somewhere around there. Your East 29th. It's pretty much in the well, it is in the tw- in the 20s.
0: So, yeah, not far from the Ace Hotel, not far from Nomad.
1: And right next to the Museum of Sex. Oh. Yeah. Did you pop in? I did not. The, but there was there there was this weird thing at the corner. It was this sex shop. But it was this really high-class sex shop. And normally sex shops, the, you know, the 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 windows are always like covered, right? And these were just wide open windows and you would see these couples just kind of like shopping, buying, you know, these long things that are shaped like, you know what. and it was, I was like, I was like staring. I was, ba- like baguette. Uh, what are you <laughs> <baguette?
0: laughs> talking about?
1: It was, it was, it was just strange and odd and kind of interesting because I walked by to, you know, had to go to and from Benno and I was like saying, oh, and it was filled with people and it was really high class.
0: Well. People have sex, turns out.
1: Yeah, but it was such Were a... Were you
0: interested in going to the museum?
1: Um, I looked inside, and I was kind of curious, but I was, it was late, and I just wanted to go back home. It was open late, though. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Museum of Sex, right next to the Evelyn Hotel. And, but, and right next to the Museum of Sex is this other shop, this sex shop, that was super high class, and I'd never seen anything quite like that, where it was just kind of open.
0: That's uh, Evelyn's yeah. my uh, my wife's grandma's name. S- oh, speaking of museums of sex. <laughs> uh, so, next up, uh, we there was a couple of lists came out the uh, Michelin Guide to Tokyo. Maybe we can just start there. That that actually dropped just a couple of days ago, right? No,
1: it dropped last night or last a, night. Few, a few hours ago. All, depending on when you're listening. Yeah, yeah, depending on when you listen to it. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a, uh, another, a, a sort of a new three Michelin star restaurant. It's called La Osier in Tokyo's Ginza district. And it actually had three Michelin stars before, and under Chef Menard. And they closed... L'Ossier um, back in I think 2011 Because the Shishido building had to be renovated So it was closed for like three years And Chef Menard went and he's Not going to wait around for three years So when it reopened under Olivier Chagnon Who used to work for Pierre Garnier in Tokyo As his executive chef there I think he was in Tokyo But he worked for Pierre Garnier regardless And um, he, he took over for the kitchen And earned two Michelin stars the first year and I thought last, I predicted last year uh, that it would get its third Michelin star, and it did not. But this year it did, and it deservedly so. I had, a, I had an excellent uh, meal at Lois- Loisier back in two thousand sixteen, and um, good for them. And also, a third ramen restaurant got a Michelin star, and that's nice to see when you have more approachable, accessible food out there that ha- that gets a Michelin star, that garners a Michelin star, and for the first time ever. An onigiri restaurant got a Michelin start, and that's awesome. You know, onigiris are that triangular-shaped, it's not really a rice ball, but rice that's kind of wrapped in nori, seaweed. And sometimes, well, it's filled usually with things like umboshi. And um, good for them.
0: And they can be very cheap. You can find them in, you know, in
1: Seven $1.50, $2 for a single onigiri. And I didn't. I didn't look at the menu of the restaurant that got a Michelin star. So I was kind of. I'm kind of curious what the prices are.
0: Yeah. What does it. What does it take to make a Michelin starred onigiri? I don't
1: know. That's why I'm curious.
0: Uh, it's, maybe it's wrapped in gold instead of <laughs> seaweed. <laughs> Just kidding. Um. So the other list that came out that was exciting is the uh, Eater National 38 Guide to. America's Best Restaurant. So this is sort of like, you know, every city in the Eater website network has a 38, and they decided four or five years ago to do one for America. And they hired Bill Addison, who's a food writer who I've known for some time, uh, to create it, and he's done five lists so far. And this was his last list, um, because he was named, like a week or two later, he was named as the... One half of the restaurant critic duo that is replacing uh, the irreplaceable Jonathan Gold.
1: What did you think of the list?
0: So the list was interesting. I read the whole thing. I was struck by the difference between the restaurants in Los Angeles and the restaurants in San Francisco. So there were four LA restaurants um, that made the 38. Here's looking at you uh, in Koreatown, although not a Korean restaurant. There's Park's Barbecue, which is a, a famous, you know, sort of the standard bearer for KBBQ in Koreatown. And then uh, I believe there was a taco truck, Mariscos Jaliscos, which I actually haven't been to. Sounds great. And the fourth one was... Ennaka. Ennaka which is... Super high-end. Super high-end Japanese. Yeah. Run by a woman. Nikki Nakiyama. And then going up to San Francisco, there was a dim sum spot in Daly City, so a little south on the peninsula. But then the other two were Bennu and Atelier Crenn. So you had, to me, like I was looking at that and it just felt like between Bennu and Atelier Crenn, you had these two like, you know, very, very, very expensive two or three star Michelin star restaurants versus L.A. where it's like a taco truck and a you know, and a Korean barbecue place and a, and a kind of casual cocktail restaurant. Like it's yes. And Naka goes on the list too, but here we have sort of the difference between the character of those cities, San Francisco being very expensive, you know, maybe unapproachable and LA just being a more casual, more approachable, maybe more fun place to go out to eat. What did you think about that?
1: Well, I've always said that, the, the 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 one knock that I've had in Los Angeles is that it didn't have fine dining. That San Francisco is where you go for fine... or oh, Bay Area is where you go for fine dining. But over the last few years, with Vespertine opening and with um, Dialogue, especially opening in L.A. County, you, there are more fine dining options because I tend to gravitate toward that. Uh, L.A. is much more approachable and much more accessible than San Francisco but, and not, surpri- not surprisingly, San Francisco n- now has more three Michelin-star restaurant th- restaurants than New York City, and that's been a more recent situation where a couple of restaurants like Danielle or jean George have lost three Michelin stars, and every, seemingly every year, or every other year, El- San Francisco picks up, or the area picks up, another three Michelin-star restaurants. But you make a good point. But there are, there are, there are casual options, a, a myriad of casual options in San Francisco. And so I I don't I don't think I know I understand I mean well it's like
0: why did Bill pick the you know that that's know probably that, a question I'm for surprised. Bill but it was something I, that I'm surprised
1: I'm surprised he went with two fine dining places yeah because he could have gone for like a Leo Leho or
0: yeah and also it's it's interesting that the newer fine dining places in LA didn't make the list right right I'm a little bit surprised that dialogue didn't make his it might list. be pretty new yeah um.
1: And I am surprised they picked Bennu and um, AC. I think he likes Cezanne too. Uh, and, and Joshua Skeen's just opened up Angler, which is supposed to be, about, a yeah. which is, we talked about before, which is supposed to be a more approachable, accessible. Um, I don't know how much more approachable. I'm supposed to go in a few days, so we'll see. It looks amazing. Okay. Yeah. But I. It, it doesn't I mean, look cheap though. Yeah, you know, that's it. Yeah. I mean, like, it's so it's not. $298. She's still probably going to pay $100 plus per person for the food yeah, there. I don't know. At least. I don't know. Well, well I, I actually, you know, on my New York trip, I tried a couple of the places on his list. One was Superiority Burger, and Michael and I went, and because Brooks Headley, who owns Superior Burger, came here during the summer and did a pop-up. And I had an issue with the buns. And I, I, I mean, the buns were great. A superior superiority burger. They were they they were perfect,
0: but again, it's it's. But they were probably using a Portland bun, right? Here, yeah.
1: And, and um, I I really enjoy superiority burger. I don't know if I'd put it in my essential thirty eight restaurants in the United States because that you know I'd rather have. And I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian, so I'd rather have a hamburger that's
0: meat in it. But you know, if you see superiority burger as like the tip of a spear, or you know. of a movement toward making vegetarian food not only – delicious but also mainstream you know uh, making it like the rest the hot restaurant that people want to go to is a vegetarian restaurant like that is definitely a trend and if you see superiority burger as as being ahead of the curve on that then they that you can put them in as being reflective of that whole okay trend and i think it it adds something to your list the same way if you're building out an la list then you're going to want Ennaka. you're going to want a mexican cart you're going to want a korean barbecue place i didn't think that I was surprised by the inclusion of here's looking at you after my meal there. I thought it was good. And I can see it from the point of view of it being, uh, you know, sort of reflective of L.A. dining in the sense that they're pulling, you know, influences from Mexican food, from Korean food, from, you know, just like that sort of melting pot of L.A.
1: It's a world cuisine restaurant.
0: It's a world. But then I wonder, like, isn't that cultural appropriation by another (laughs) name? I mean, nobody wants to say cultural appropriation like it's like bad word to say that now but like it, you can just say oh we're an LA restaurant and then you have carte blanche to do whatever you want I, I just I don't know I'm not going to get on a high horse about it but it, it, it was an odd to me that I didn't think that fit necessarily
1: okay I mean I, I wouldn't put it I, I first of all I enjoyed I thoroughly enjoyed my meal and here's looking at you one of my favorite dishes of the year is the frog legs that I had there but but you know for me if I'm coming up with my list I I am not I don't have to, I'm not bound by having to be to have I'm not bound by geographic uh having a geographic diverse list of restaurants and and a non-stratified list of restaurants. For example, I would I pro- there probably be like mostly fine dining tasty menu restaurants on my list. And you know, that's just the way I eat and that's kind of what I like.
0: Yeah, everyone has their own list. I mean, right. everyone has their own approach like we were we were also there was another list that came out, which was the Thrillist Guide to New Restaurants, and it had two Portland restaurants on it. It Had Canard, which was also the Oregonian, the Oregonians' Restaurant of the Year at the, the my day job at the paper, and they had Kargi Gogo, which is a newer, uh, well, not so super new, but it's a Georgian restaurant, relatively inexpensive. It used to be a food cart, and they opened uh, a tiny restaurant. Um, and I thought that that list was really reflective of, you know, maybe Thrillist being trying to be more approachable to everybody. You know, I, they would not probably not throw on a uh, Bennu or an Atelier Cren necessarily, you know, a place where you're going to drop hundreds of dollars per person. Um, so, yeah, it's always reflective of the person writing the list, right. you know, and but what you, they like.
1: But you have to be, I mean, for this list, you, you have to have a cross section of restaurants. And I understand that.
0: The, I mean, and the thing about the the reason to talk about this list is it's one of the few where a single person travels the entire country almost the entire year just eating at restaurants and trying to figure out what the best restaurant is. It's I, I, insane. I have deep. I
1: mean, I don't know if anyone's tried that before. You talk about Alan Richmond or, you know, guys who've tried to do it in the past. I don't think they've done it to this level and to this degree. And I have deep admiration for what bill did for four five years yeah it's really
0: impressive that's
1: i mean i travel a ridiculous amount and i i mean it's just hard i mean it's physically and mentally hard and frustrating
0: and he wrote a little bit about how it affected impacted his relationships to do it i mean uh i think that that's a job that if you're a food writer you sort of think of it as your dream job and then you know doing that amount of travel just feels like draining you know
1: yeah i mean it's going from continent to continent i mean like he mostly stayed within the u.s and i'm flying from one from asia to europe to to south america to, so and it's it's different it's it's it's
0: it's. Just, but you can also decide not to do it for a month right because i don't job, I, really. I
1: don't i mean yeah. and i'm doing this to myself and we'll see what happens when i finally kind of slow down you know next year Middle, they had toward the end of next year, but I just kind of curious. Was I mean, I, I'm a lot older than Bill, and you know, that's kind of why one reason I'm doing this is because I want to do it while I still can. That's true, and so yeah, good for Bill.
0: You wanted to go break down a little list. I
1: do love lists, that's my favorite. <laughs> that's my favorite sentence, and um, I don't know if we'll do a list every week, but I love bakeries. I spent, um, I went to a few bakeries in New York City, and that got me thinking about what are my top five favorite bakeries in the U.S. And sitting at number five is Silfra Bakery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. uh, Mariko Patrick, who's also the pastry chef at Oleana, um, does a fantastic job with unusual uh, Mediterranean-influenced baked goods, and it's great. So for Bakery, Cambridge. City number four. Belinda Leong and Michelle Suas. Bee Patissier in San Francisco, right on California Street. I was their f- first unofficial customer way back when, when they opened. Um, <laughs> they weren't open in public, but I was like leaving for San Francisco. I said, chef, can I just come in and can you just bake me a whole box of stuff? She I did. had
0: one of the worst service experiences in my life at Be oh, Patisserie Honolulu. Ah
1: they They're get, they're famous for the Queen of Mons. Did you have the Queen Amon? I know it's maybe
0: it, it, it's, it's just a black hole in my memory. Okay. It's yeah. F patisserie for me.
1: Oh, okay. But they have an amazing Queen of Mon. Um city so number three, a relatively local bakery. Saboteur Bakery in Bremerton, Washington. So you had I took a ferry. I was staying in Seattle and I, I wanted to go to Saboteur, so you have to take a ferry from Seattle to Bremerton. And then I walked from the ferry to the bakery, and Matt Tinder, who was the executive pastry chef at um, Three Michelin Star Restaurant in Meadowood, twice, and um, Three Michelin Star Qua, and also Three Michelin Star Cezanne. He was the executive pastry chef at all three places, and he opened his own little bakery in Bremerton. I've
0: had a chance to have his pastries... And they're fantastic. Uh, he, my, not, I haven't been to Saboteur, but I've had his stuff at a couple places. And and Michael amazing.
1: had it. I had it with Michael here in Portland when yeah. he did a pop-up at Trifecta. And Ben had some issues with because he wasn't used to the oven. So it wasn't as good as it could have been. And Bremerton, he knows... Obviously, the ins and outs of all his equipment, he's just got nailed down. So sitting at number three is Saboteur Bakery, Bremerton, Washington. Sitting at number two, Bay Area. Go to Bay Area. Los Gatos, Manresa Bread. Avery Ruzica is the head um, baker there. And she's she's a little bit of a prodigy. She does the fantastic um, Queen Amon, fantastic uh, croissants. Uh, that's what I tend to do. I tend to try like croissants, regular croissants, almond croissant, pano chocolate, and maybe another except just to compare various bakeries, bakeries to bakeries. Sitting at number one, surprisingly, uh, kind of an underrated bakery, also in San Francisco. Is Neighbor Bakehouse Greg Mendel mm. is in the Dogpatch area of San Francisco. Wow, and, that's high, right? Just number you ever, one. You're number one, Neighbor. Have you been? Mm-mm. If you have a chance, you can go to Neighbor Bakehouse and walk over to um, Aina. Aina, it's a Hawaiian restaurant that you can have that serves a great brunch um, on the weekends. So it's Dogpatch area of San Francisco. Greg Mendel, Neighbor Bakehouse.
0: Yeah, yeah, everything's opening in Dog Patch right now.
1: Right. Good area. And my favorite bakery in Portland, Oregon. Yeah,
0: yeah. where? Come on, show some love. Tri-
1: Trifecta Tavern and Bakery. Open seven, seven days a week. I think it's like eight until four. They do, it's not really popular. No one really goes there. They make like eight croissants a day, they make, you know, like eight snails, raspberry snails, for example, a day. <laughs> and they, they of course they do their breads there um the breads but, for
0: the restaurant i mean yeah yeah and for other and people, they will sell you pastries wholesale. a little deeper into the night once the restaurant opens at 4 4:35 whenever it is they if they still have stuff left over you can walk in there and buy and i'm i'm with you man not only is that my favorite bakery in portland but it blows my mind every time i'm in there and there's no line i mean there's, zero, no, there's one no one there. In there there's no one in there you're the only one there it's
1: I I can't I don't know why you, everyone should go to Trifecta Tavern and Bakery. I mean it's it, it's it's it, everyone said like, well oh, I'll just go to Ken's Artisan Bakery. No, it's different. The recipes are kind of sort of different, and the and the offerings are kind of sort of different. For a while, there were two different croissant recipes. At one was at Ken's Artisan, and one was at you know Trifecta. The one at Trifecta was a lot better. So they actually I was told that they're using that croissant recipe for the one at Ken's Artisan Bakery, mm. and. I don't know. It's the best bakery in Portland. One of the best in the nation.
0: So one of their pastries that sort of jumped out this summer was Ken, I think it might be the second year he's done it, but he, he made this corn croissant, which is made with all sorts of types of the corn. Uh, there's ash from the corn husky. It kind of reminds, reminds me of the uh, corn meringue at Cosme where you ate and we talked about that on a previous episode, just like a, a dish that uses all sorts of types of the corn. And I think there's even a bourbon glaze on top. So the corn goes even to that level.
1: I like the honey ham, uh, croissant. It's nice. Had the best, I had the best, uh, ham and cheese croissant I've ever had in my life in New York city. Patissier Chanson. Um, Rory McDonald does a six, ki- six course dessert tasting at night. during the day is a uh, bakery, Patissier and b- amazing pastries at, uh, Petitier Chanson on 23rd street in New York city.
0: And then, um, yeah. And great bread too. Okay. So if you're in Portland trifecta, Tavern and Tavern and Bakery, if you're anywhere else in America, hit up one of the spots on Gary's list. Uh, you know, we, to finish off our show, you wanted to talk a little bit about the NBA. So what do you got for me?
1: I have a question for you and I don't know if, how often you look at the NBA standings? Who's Who do you think is leading the Western Conference right now?
0: God, is it the Clippers? Yes, you are correct. Even right now?
1: Huh. Yes. Uh, name the Clippers' leading scorer.
0: Uh, is it Lou Williams?
1: No, he's third.
0: Uh, third?
1: He's third on the team.
0: But but it, oh, it's Tobias Harris.
1: you are correct.
0: Yeah. Good I don't know if I, I don't know if I could have gotten that in between
1: Tobias and um, Lou. Sweet so Lou, Tobias
0: is a guy that they got back in the big Blake Griffin trade, which was huge because they had just signed Blake to a five-year deal and sold him on being the face of the franchise and then traded him six months later.
1: And all they had a big three DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul, and Blake Griffin. they're all gone and they're and, number one and they're number one. Yeah. And that surprises. That's that's surprising to me. And the West this year, the Western Conference, as usual, is just. It's very. It's so well. Everyone's pretty much has the same record. Like the Blazers, I think are seeded seventh or eighth. If they lose three or four games, they could fall down to 14th. There's really one bad team in the West, and that's the Phoenix Suns.
0: Yeah, and the Blazers were number one just like five or six days ago. I mean, yeah. And they fell that far because they're, it's so tight. It's like there's right. four games separating one and 14 or something. It's it's crazy.
1: And uh, what's your surprise so far in the NBA?
0: Some of the teams that are surprising me and anybody who follows the NBA, it's just like the Grizzlies. You know probably shouldn't be surprising because conley and gasol are so good when they're healthy but they haven't been healthy together for a long time um i feel like the kings and magic are like the same on opposite coasts that they're they're overachieving they're both over 500 and they're both gonna fall back down to earth by the end of the season but i don't know about sacramento maybe not well, Fox is super exciting to watch. So, right. De'Aaron Fox De'Aaron F- is a Your guy. He's just, he's taken a little leap. So, the Kings are super exciting with Fox. The Magic, who knows? They did this last year, too, where Aaron Gordon was hitting 50% from three and they won, you know, 65% of their first 15 games and then it all fell apart, which I think it'll do again for the Magic. And honestly, the West is just too tough for a team like the Kings to keep yeah, going. Yeah, that's I a good mean, point. The fact that he is um, probably doing better than all three of the more highly celebrated rookies from last year in Ben Simmons, Jason Tatum, and Donovan Mitchell, all of whom have struggled in certain aspects of their game. Fox has sort of leapt ahead of them this year in terms of second-year players. Um, It'll be interesting to see if he keeps that up.
1: Well, yeah, I know with the young players you just never know, but I isn't Buddy Buddy healed. Buddy healed. He, I think he's playing really well. Yeah. And yeah, so That's great. The two uh, of them. Yeah, I I think, you know, the, I mean, if the Clippers are 13-6, my god, with people like Sweet Lou Williams and yeah. and you know, Tobias Harris leading the way, I think it, and, and the 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 Wizards are really struggling. That's another Yeah, surprise. I was
0: going to say that's probably If you ask me what the least surprising thing of the season would be, I would say it's the Wizards uh, implosion just because they, they just had these like, you know, John Walls, the quintessential talks a lot and doesn't do anything on the court guy. Uh, they all seem to hate Otto Porter for some reason, and then they added, what, Dwight Howard and Austin Rivers, and they expected that to be like, like a locker room vets or something? It's not you good. You make a good point. Okay, yeah, you make, good. A great, you yeah. make a great point. So I'm not surprised by that. And they're talking about rumors
1: about um, one of the two either Beal or Wall being traded and Houston being a potential landing spot, because Houston is struggling. That's another surprise, because they were the number one seed last year, not Golden State. Houston was. And they're like, Eight and seven or something like that? They're, they're playing better
0: recently, but they've struggled. But, you know, keep in mind, they have a new owner. And I'm not saying he's, you know, tight with the purse strings, but they didn't pay Trevor Ariza and they didn't pay Luke Richard Mbamute. Uh, those were two of their best blue guys. perimeter defenders. And blue guys. guys. And they, you know, uh, Luke was injured for the playoffs but you know before that he was pretty stout and Ariza could hit threes and they didn't really replace either of those guys I mean that I think it's like those are the kind of guys they're not superstars so you think they don't really matter but then you go into the season and if you don't have them especially the way Houston's whole offense is built around Harden or Paul driving and then kicking to a guy who hits a three all right and not and not playing defense on in Harden's case. So if you lose out on the guy who can hit the three and then on the other end, you lose out on the guy who can help when Harden breaks down. It's, it's a huge blow to them.
1: But I think the, they're playing better recently. I think they'll get their mojo back. They'll be, they'll make the playoffs. It's the West is going to be, the bronze going to make the playoff.
0: The bronze. I mean, like this is crazy. It's, uh, it's brutal. So, uh, I think that'll wrap things up, and I just uh, a little programming note: um, Gary and I will both be down in the Bay Area separately. This, you know, when depending on when you hear this this weekend, and then we're actually both going to Houston together. So we might try to find out a way to record a podcast there together, or if not, we'll wrap up our thoughts when we get back to Portland uh, two weeks from now. Okay, Thanks thank you everyone. so much.
1: Bye, bye. Happy holidays.